This is Jeff Guy. We're going to continue our uh, series on uh, topics of mechanical ventilation. We've been doing a series to try to introduce um, mechanical ventilation to somebody who may not have a whole lot of experience or someone who uh, has experience with mechanical ventilation but is not exactly sure why we do some of the little things that we do. Um, on this talk, I really want to focus on issues regarding um, uh, ventilation and oxygenation. Uh, ventilation referring to um, things such as tidal volume and, and the rate, and then um, on oxygenation, you know, what is the relationship of FiO2 and PEEP and functional residual capacity? Let's start with ventilation. When we look at an arterial blood gas, the things that really we're looking at in regards to ventilation are, are the PCO2, or the partial pressure, partial pressure of carbon dioxide in the dissolved plasma. In, in some regard, the CO2 contributes to the pH. Now, what stimulates most people to breathe is uh, pH, not so much of the blood, but of the cerebral spinal fluid. Um, people who have COPD don't really uh, have a, a respiratory stimulus in that regard. Their respiratory stimulus is hypoxia. But when we make changes to a ventilator, um, uh, that we want to change the CO2. We want to make the CO2 uh, better or, or you know, if we want to improve the CO2, somebody's got a CO2 of, say, 60, we want to improve the uh, minute ventilation. A minute ventilation is defined as the tidal volume times the respiratory rate. And those are the two things that really affect ventilation. Now, respiratory rate is, we're, we're pretty comfortable with that is. That's how many times we breathe in, in a minute. Um, in some regards, we can call that respiratory cycling. And in an adult, it may be, say, 10 to 12 times a minute. And as we increase the respiratory rate, we're going to be increasing the patient's mean airway pressures. Now, as we try to liberate somebody from the ventilator, or what people commonly refer to as weaning from the ventilator, we may begin to start backing down on the set rate on the ventilator. For instance, if somebody is on an SIMV rate of 12, we were trying to march them down, say, to a rate of 10, 8, 6, what have you. And... Um, they may not have an adequate minute ventilation as we turn the ventilator down, and then we'll try to increase the pressure support. And I call this the SIMV pressure support slide. We would like the patient to be on the minimal set mechanical rate, and we uh, supplement that with a pressure support breath. Now, in the earlier talk on different modes of mechanical ventilation, we introduced and talked about what pressure support is and, and how it's beneficial to the patient. Pressure support is more desirable than an SIMV breath for a couple of reasons. One, a machine breath is what I call a factory breath. It's very predetermined. It's not very physiological. If you're on SIMV mode, it's much like breathing from a scuba mask. The, the gas is either on or off. The valves of the ventilator are either open or closed, and therefore the gas either is either all on or all off. We don't breathe like this. Uh, typically, uh, the patient requires more sedation. When you're on machine breath, the machine controls the eye time, the E time, the flow rate, and so forth. When a patient is on a pressure-supported breath, they're controlling more of those physiological parameters. Uh, it has the patient more involved, and hopefully it also requires less sedation. So that's how we deal with rate. Now, tidal volume um, um, uh, is basically the um, amount of uh, gas that we give with each tidal cycle, with each breath. It used to be said, it used to be 10 to 15 cc's per kilo. 
where that came from was back actually in the in the 60s. If we look at a physiological tidal volume, what is a normal person breathing when they're not on a ventilator? You're probably looking in the area between five to seven cc's per kilo. Well, they were used to ventilate patients with that back in the 60s, and they found out that a large number of patients who had um, uh, been on mechanical ventilation had atelectasis. So they ended up increasing the tidal volume, and they ended up increasing it to a rate of, to a volume of about roughly 10 to 15 cc's per per kilo. Well, that certainly um, did wonders for the atelectasis. We certainly saw a resolution of atelectasis, and we ventilated people with that kind of concept for almost 30 years. Um, and then we learned that uh, lower tidal volume ventilation uh, was more beneficial. And uh, it's not really a a you know lower uh, tidal volume ventilation. It's more uh, appropriate to say that it's a physiological. Um, tidal volume. When we were ventilating people 10 to 15 cc's per kilo, we were close to giving them side breaths with every breath. Um, but now we're back to say 5 to 7 cc's per kilo per breath. And that's going to affect ventilation or the PCO2. Now, uh, ventilation is the management of carbon dioxide. Now, ventilation is much different than oxygenation. Um, to use for an example, let's take a patient who's getting a brain death assessment. Uh, a patient has uh, had a horrible traumatic brain injury or a stroke. Um, they are neurologically um, dead. There's no neurological function. And you're going to perform what's called an apnea test on the patient. And when we do an apnea test, we, patient, we put the patient on 100% FiO2. We put them on a mode called CPAP. And we basically turn the rate off. And uh, after a period of time, we draw blood gases. And we watch to see that the CO2 on the blood gas goes up a set amount, 10 or 15 millimeters of mercury. Throughout the period of time, in a large portion of the patients, their oxygenation is just fine. Now, they're not moving gas in and out of their lungs. They're on CPAP, which is continuous positive airway pressure. So we're putting a constant pressure on the, the tracheal tube or the tracheostomy tube. The patient is not moving air in and out of their lungs. But during this period of time, a large number of these patients have an adequate oxygen saturation. But as I said, their CO2 is going up. Well, how is this possible? Well, oxygenation works through processes of diffusion. You don't actually have to move large amounts of gas in and out of your lung to be able to oxygenate. Um, diffusion basically is, you know, from, from ninth grade... Uh, high school science is the movement of a molecule from a concentration of uh, high concentration to an area of low concentration. Now carbon dioxide has to move through the processes of convection and a convection uh, is basically a mass movement of gas in and out of the lungs and that's how a patient who is on a brain death or apnea test will have an adequate oxygenation but a worsening ventilation. Um, so when we increase the total volume or we increase the rate of a ventilator, we are making adjustments to the ventilation, and we will see that manifested in the blood gases on the CO2. Now let's switch to oxygenation. Typically on a blood gas, we're looking at the PO2 uh, as a reflection of how adequately or inadequately we're oxygenating the patient. And 
this really isn't the most accurate predictor of how well somebody's oxygenating. If you keep in mind that a partial pressure of oxygen is really defined as the amount of oxygen that's dissolved in the plasma. Well, be mindful that we were not designed to carry oxygen designed in the plasma. We are designed to carry oxygen bound to hemoglobin. And there are several formulas that we use that can really illustrate how little oxygen is actually dissolved in the plasma as reflected in the partial pressure of oxygen on the blood gas. The content of arterial oxygen, or the CaO2, is defined by the hemoglobin concentration times 1.34, and in some textbooks I've seen it listed as 1.39, but for the sake of discussion, 1.34 times the saturation of arterial oxygen. You take that number and you multiply it by 0 0.0031 times the PO2, which is a very, very small number. If the PO2 is 60, it's a small number. If the PO2 is 600, it's a small number. So the amount of oxygen dissolved in the plasma is essentially negligible. But we use this as a metric of how well a patient's adequately oxygenated or inadequately oxygenated, but never ignore the saturation. Keep in mind that when you look at a blood gas and you see saturation on a blood gas, it says O2 sat, and then typically in small numbers next to it, it says CA. And that means the saturation has been calculated from a nomogram. So if you really want a, um, uh, an assessment of somebody's saturation, your pulse oximeter is more accurate than your blood gas. Now, what determines your oxygen saturation or your oxygen content in the blood? Well, one is the FiO2. And the FiO2 stands for the fraction of inspired oxygen. The atmosphere has 21% oxygen, and clearly 100% oxygen means that you have 100% oxygen. Now, oxygen is a biological toxin. Okay. We have enzyme systems in our body, uh, particularly catalase systems, that prevent the oxygen from wreaking just biological havoc. And to some people, it sounds rather strange to say that oxygen is a biological poison. But it's, um, if, when you think about the autogeny of life or the evolution of life, our planet developed mostly with a large plant mass. And it was consuming carbon dioxide, and the off-gassed waste product was oxygen. And therefore, if you were a new life form uh, and you wanted to develop an advantage over other life forms, you would consume a waste product. And the waste product was oxygen. And our biological systems used to control that with very sophisticated enzyme systems. Um, but in the absence of those enzyme systems, we have significant damage. Um, the way to look at this is much like a nuclear reactor, is that we are burning a fuel uh, that is dangerous, but we have systems to keep that um, toxin, that dangerous fuel, in check uh, and uh, compartmentalized. So we'd like to use the least amount of oxygen we possibly can. There's been several studies throughout the decades that determine, you know, what is the safest FiO2? You know, is it 40? Is it 50? Uh, is it 60? Basically, you would like to minimize the amount of oxygen uh, that you can. And, and one way that we can do that is with the use of positive end expiratory pressure, or commonly known as PEEP. Now, if you were to take your lung and every little nuance of your lung, every little square millimeter and centimeter, and fold it out, you'd have a surface area 
for the sake of this discussion, let's say equivalent to a tennis court. And oxygen, as I said, basically binds by diffusion. Or it, it, you oxygenate patients by diffusion. So the larger your surface area, the more effective you're going to be able to oxygenate a patient. And for reasons of positioning and atelectasis or pneumonias, uh, some of that area of our surface court may not be available to us. Well, the functional residual capacity, as you'll remember, is the amount of lung um, volume that is um, uh, in between the inspirations, that we're using between the inspirations. I'm trying to keep this as simple as I can. We typically call it now the idea of PEEP is to keep our FRC as large as possible. Some will tell you, and, and, and if you're experienced, you may have heard that PEEP increases our functional residual cap capacity, or uh, to use our tennis court example, PEEP makes our tennis court larger. We're using a larger percentage of our tennis court for oxygenation. It's not accurate. Um, inspiratory maneuvers recruit FRC. Expiratory maneuvers maintain FRC. PEEP is an expiratory maneuver, so it maintains a recruited FRC. So what PEEP does is maintain, it makes sure that we use as much of that tennis court as we possibly can. And oxygen molecules diffuse, they collide with that blood gas membrane, and they oxygenate the patient. Now, there are some negative implications of PEEP. When I was a fellow um, about 10 years ago, it was not common to see people, um, it was not uncommon to see people on PEEPs of 20, 22, 25. And this was our typical first modality in the treatment of ARDS. And, and this would be a very uncommon thing to see nowadays. Um, what we do with PEEP is as we increase PEEP, we increase the likelihood of barotrauma. Um, and I'm, gonna, I'm using this incorrectly to make my point. Uh, because we've heard the terms barotrauma, that if we put too much pressure on the lung, that barotrauma or pressure trauma will result in something like a pneumothorax. Well, that was our initial understanding, um, that certainly PEEP has its pressure and can cause things like pneumothoraces. Uh, it can cause some other negative effects. Um, let's think about the cardiovascular system, uh, uh, for instance. This is our FR. It is fair to say that we suck. Um, and when I say that we suck, we suck in regards to the way that our breathing. A, a normal individual breathing breathes through negative inspiration. We drop the uh, thoracic pressure in our chest such that it is less than the ambient pressure, and that draws air into our lungs because air goes from the uh, area of higher pressure to lower pressure. When we put somebody on a mechanical ventilator, we're taking their pulmonary physiology and we're spinning it 180 degrees, making them positive pressure ventilation. Okay, now normally the pressure inside your chest is negative and the pressure inside your, your abdomen and, and, and for the most part in your extremities is somewhat positive. And so a patient, for instance, who's bleeding or is hypovolemic, uh, they'll, one of the initial symptoms you'll see is they'll increase their respiratory rate. And some would argue, well, they're increasing their respiratory rate to compensate for a metabolic acidosis from being hypovolemia. In, in more severe cases of hypovolemia, hypovolemia, that may be true. But in reality, what's happening is they're increasing their respiratory rate because every time you drop 
uh, your diaphragm. Every time you take a breath, you're dropping your intrathoracic pressure. And that increases the vector force, or the pressure gradient, from areas of positive venous pressure to the chest uh, where the pressure is dropping. So it's acting much like a bellows system. You're literally pumping or sucking the blood back to the thorax. Blood that comes back to the thorax goes to the right side of the heart. Cardi improved cardiac return improves cardiac output. This is an adaptive mechanism uh, for hypovolemia. When you put somebody on positive pressure ventilation, you're actually increasing the pressure inside the thorax. You're going from negative pressure ventilation to positive pressure ventilation. And this has a negative effect on cardiac return. Uh, therefore, that has a negative effect on cardiac output. Now, when we add PEEP to someone, what we are doing is we're increasing the pressure inside the thorax. That's the same as increasing um, uh, excuse me, decreasing the cardiac return. And as we go higher and higher up on that, we decrease the amount of blood that can return to the heart. It used to be said that if you had somebody who was on, say, a PEEP of 14 or 15, we would put pulmonary artery catheters in, in patients and so that we could monitor their preload. Uh, there's not much um, use of pulmonary artery catheters nowadays, and quite frankly, uh, there's not a whole lot of patients who are getting peeps of 15, but even when they are getting uh, higher peeps, uh, there are other methods to use to assess adequate preload. Those things could be uh, echocardiography in the intensive care unit, uh, esophageal Doppler monitoring, um, uh, lithium dilution cardiac output tools, um, and just physical exam as well. But again, as you increase peep, you're choking the blood return to the heart. The other issue that you have with the heart is um, the, uh, the atria, or atrial natriuretic peptide. As the atria stretches, the right atria stretches, there's a network of um, receptors on that, and as the uh, right atria will stretch, that indicates that there may be a volume overload problem. And then you see the release of atrial natriuretic peptide, which improves the urine output. Well, all of the pressures in the chest are accumulative. So as you're increasing the PEEP, you're actually increasing the extrinsic press pressure on the right atrium. That prevents the right atrium from distending and then decreases the production of atrial natriuretic peptide. Less atrial natriuretic peptide then means less of a urine output. Continuing on the focus on the kidney, the renal perfusion, or the renal blood flow, is really determined by the differences of the mean arterial pressure and the central venous pressure. What's the pressure gradient from the artery going into the, the kidney, and what's the pressure of the, the uh, blood vessel coming out of the kidney? The greater this difference, the greater the pressure gradient, the greater the blood flow. As we increase the PEEP, we increase the central venous pressure. If we take a patient who has, say, a PEEP of 5, that may, they may have a central venous pressure of, say, uh, 5 as well, and their mean arterial pressure is 65. So 65 minus 5, the pressure gradient there is 60, uh, excuse me, 65 minus 5, the pressure gradient there is 60. Now, if we uh, increase the PEEP, 
we may see an increase of the CVP, such that the C we take the PEEP, say, from 5 to 15. Let's say that just for the sake of this discussion, the CVP also rises to 15. We haven't changed the patient's volume status, but the rise in the CVP is commensurate to the rise in the central venous pressure. I'm sorry, the rise in the central venous pressure, I said that wrong, the rise of the central venous pressure is commensurate with the rise in the PEEP. It's a cause and effect relationship there. So now what happens? Your mean arterial pressure stays the same. It's 65. Now your CVP is 15. So what's your pressure gradient? 65 minus 15 is 50. Your renal blood flow is reduced. And that can certainly have a negative impact on your urine output. The other uh, issue in regards to urine output is that with increasing levels of PEEP, we see changes in regional blood flow through the kidney rather than using cortical nephrons we're using medullary nephrons and that has a, a negative effect on the um, urine production. So we've talked about how PEEP can adversely affect things like the uh, cardiac return, we could talk how it affects the urine output. Let's talk about this issue of barotrauma. Now peak inspiratory pressure is defined as, uh, it's a formula and it's really difficult to talk about formulas on an audio uh, presentation, but it is the tidal volume uh, over the compliance of the lung and the thorax. You take that uh, dividend and you add to that the resistance of the airway times the flow of the gas. And through decades of research, we've been told to really kind of stay away from peak inspiratory, peak inspiratory pressures greater than 40. Uh, that that will result in barotrauma. In barotrauma, it means that you're blowing up the little alveolar sacs and, and, and creating lung damage and, and eventually creating uh, pneumothoraces. We've also learned that when we ventilate lungs too rigorously and we overdistend alveoli, we really aggravate things like type 2 pneumocytes and we create an inflammatory storm, which should actually make the ARDS worse. So, you know, sometimes the treatment on the ventilator is as bad as the disease. So our approach to ventilation can actually aggravate our ARDS as well. So we try to stay away from the high pressures. But imagine you've got two little alveoli. Uh, or you've got two lung units. And to one lung unit, you've got um, a resistance to the flow of the gas, either due to a thickening of the membrane or mucus plugging, uh, or the uh, lung unit on that side is compliant. And you give somebody a tidal cycle, and the peak pressure um, is measured at 20. The, the volume that you deliver will go through the path of, the path of least resistance. So the lung unit that has thickening of the bronchus and a very poorly compliant um, uh, alveolus or, or filled with fluid, um, that one will not uh, distend. So that tidal cycle then goes to the normal alveolus and that normal alveolus becomes over distended or fractured. And that fracturing um, can cause damage um, to the alveolus despite having a normal pressure. So sometimes it's more accurate to say that, yes, we have barotrauma, but what we're really looking at are what are the dimensions uh, of the lung units or the alveolar lung units, and are we over-distending them, creating volume trauma. Now, when we're weaning uh, PEEP, we have to be mindful that I said earlier that oxygen is a biological poison. So sometimes what we will do is somebody is requiring 60% 
FiO2. What we will try to do is maximize their FRC uh, in order to decrease their FiO2. Okay, we're going to increase the functional residual capacity to decrease the percentage of oxygen that they're breathing. So what we will do is we'll increase the PEEP. Um, say a patient's on 60% FiO2 and only 5 of PEEP. What we'll do is we'll increase the PEEP, try to maintain as large as an FRC as possible. And once we've increased the PEEP, we will then decrease the FiO2. So if we start out on 60% with 5 of PEEP, we will... Uh, end up titrating the PEEP upward. We'll be titrating the PEEP upward as we decrease the FiO2. And then once we get down uh, the FiO2 to what may be considered an arbitrary safe zone, say of 40% or 45%, uh, then we'll slowly come down on the PEEP. Don't wean the PEEP too quickly because what will happen is, is the lung units that you're trying to keep open will close shut, they'll slam shut. And once those lung units or those little alveolar slam shut, they're very difficult to reopen. This is an issue of something called cord compliance. This is a physics concept. If you've ever taken a balloon uh, at, from a children's party and try to blow up a balloon fresh out of the bag, you know that when you start to blow up the balloon, you have to really uh, push very hard to get any kind of distension into that balloon. You'll, you'll blow, you'll see the vein in your head start to, to blow and everything else. And then once you get that balloon initially open, it's a little bit easier to inflate. What you're experiencing there is cord compliance. So once you allow those lung units to collapse, it's much like reinflating the balloon. It's more difficult to get them open. It's easier to keep them open than to open a collapsed lung unit. So go slow with your weaning of, of PEEP. Don't try to be greedy and try to wean them down too quickly. Uh, or you'll experience atelectasis and to steal a phrase from the Southern Baptist, you'll backslide. So that's a brief introduction to concepts of PEEP, oxygenation, and ventilation. I hope you find that helpful. Um, again, visit the website. There are articles paste, uh, posted on a variety of these topics, and the website is www.burndoc.com. This is Jeff Guy. See.